Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about nuclear security. Will nuclear weapons make a comeback? Asked a foreign affairs headline a while back amidst eroding arms control. Then, earlier this year and at the last minute, Russia and the United States extended the Nuclear Arms Reduction Treaty New Start. And yet, prospects for additional nuclear arms control remain poor, according to CIPRI. The nuclear powers are investing in new capabilities and modernizing their arsenals. Thus, the status quo, says Michael Crappen of the think tank the Stimson Center, is less stable now than during the Cold War. That's why I made a local call to Marina Henke, professor of international relations here at the Hertie School and director of the Center for International Security. Her research focuses on nuclear security, military interventions, and European defense policy. Marina and I discuss the center's newest research project titled Understanding Nuclear Assurance, Deterrence, and Escalation in Europe, her research into the psychology of limited nuclear war, nuclear weapons as signaling devices, strategic instability, arms control, and the controversy over nuclear sharing in Germany. Now, I'm excited to welcome Marina Henke as our July guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Marina. Hi, Katharina. I'm very happy to be here. Great to have you. Well, this is the Berlin Security Beat. So tell us what's the most Berlin thing you've done since moving to the German capital? Well, I think the most Berlin thing is that I visited all the different historical parts of the city, which are so extremely varied, as uh, many of our listeners know. Germany has played a role in a lot of historical moments. Of course, you know, like the latest was at the end of the Cold War. So I love to just walk along the remnants of the former Berlin Wall. Now there are markers on the floor of Berlin, and it's very easy to see it. But then, of course, what I really like is we have little markers here of Jews that were deported to concentration camps. They're called Stolperstein, and I think that's a very good and very moving initiative that's all across Berlin. And then, of course, so many more memorials of remembering the Jewish Holocaust as well, next to the Brandenburg Gate and then other memorials of the Second World War and First World War and so forth. So I think Berlin, in this sense, gets never boring. And for a international security scholar like me, of course, it reminds me of the immediate consequences of our work. And of course, that's it's very thrilling. So true. The U.S. Department of State sees increased potential for nuclear conflict, according to a newly disclosed document from last year. It's against that backdrop that the Center for International Security has been collaborating with the U.S.-based Stanton Foundation on a research project on nuclear security titled Understanding Nuclear Assurance, Deterrence, and Escalation in Europe. Marina, to kick us off, can you tell us the background? How did that collaboration come about? So in large parts of Germany and Europe in general, and I'm excluding a little bit now at the nuclear powers, so that's France and the UK, nuclear weapons are perceived as mainly war fighting devices. 
And actually, this is a very reductionist point of view. Of course, it's true. And they have been used once and certainly one time too many over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I would say on a day-to-day basis, nuclear weapons are actually used as signaling devices, as communication devices in strategic bargaining. And we at the center, we have the impression that this knowledge on the critical role of nuclear weapons in strategic bargaining has largely got lost in Germany and in Europe. And so there was an urgent need to revive that knowledge. And that's what we are trying to do via, of course, research, but then as well a lot of outreach, of uh, talks, of workshops, um, of a summer school, and so forth. All right. And for the foundation, it's the first foray into Europe. So mm-hmm. Exactly. So it has um, several programs in the United States. Uh, and we are basically the first European program on nuclear security. Like you said, nuclear weapons haven't been used in war since 1945. But scholars like Nina Tannenwald, senior lecturer at Brown University, warn that this nuclear taboo is weakening. And fittingly, your news research analyzes the psychology of limited nuclear war. Can you tell us what limited nuclear war is and how a concept from the heyday of the Cold War is interesting today? So limited nuclear war is basically the usage of nuclear weapons as a signaling device, as a communication device, as a bargaining device. And throughout the Cold War, they have been constantly used in this type of fashion. And of course, the most famous incident is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Here, Secretary Khrushchev at the time was very unhappy. He had basically just lost against the United States in the Berlin crisis, going back again to the historical importance of Berlin. He wanted to seize West Berlin, which was a tiny little island in the ocean of Soviet control. And President Kennedy at the time threatened the use of nuclear weapons if Khrushchev would actually make a move on West Berlin. But in the end, it was actually all about strategic bargaining because truth to be told, what if Kennedy really fired a nuclear weapon? Very unlikely. But just the probability that there was actually the potential of using it had a massive bargaining effect on this entire scenario. But Khrushchev was upset. And so he said, well, you know, I'm going to give Kennedy a little bit of the same medicine that I just had to take. And so I'm actually going to station nuclear weapons on Cuba. And I hope most of the listeners know a little bit what unfolded the American-led blockade. And again, it was all about strategic bargaining. And actually, the entire crisis was solved with a bargain that the Soviets would remove the weapons from Cuba. And of course, the United States would remove the weapons from Turkey, right? So this was a quid pro quo. But the message that Khrushchev wanted to send to the United States was like, I am unhappy and you are very close to actually crossing a red line. And so in today's context, we think that actually maybe in Russian nuclear doctrine, there's a similar strategy potentially being discussed. And that's the strategy of escalate to de-escalate. Oh, what's that? So it's a scenario in which Russia has interests that would like to defend, either one could imagine in Ukraine or even the Baltics. And then NATO makes a move, basically tries to contradict these Russian interests. And then to send a crystal clear message that NATO is crossing the line, Russia might actually detonate a tactical nuclear weapon. So that's a 
small nuclear device where the damage is actually quite limited. And this is why we are speaking of a limited war. And the objective here, as in all of these signaling and communication strategies of nuclear weapons, is basically political or it is psychological. It tries to manipulate the fears of a target audience. And here, of course, the target audience is not necessarily the elites in the NATO states, but it's actually the population. So can you tell me about the research design? How do you get to the attitudes of the people? How do you measure that? Well, the best way today is to conduct experiments. So these are large-scale survey experiments where we basically give a set of questions or put, you know, in our case, it was over 3,000 people, put them in a certain scenario. And here, of course, it involved some kind of potential Russian use of nuclear weapons. And then we try to see how they react. Of course, all of this is hypothetical. So we are trying to determine how the public could react um, in, for now, still a fictitious situation. But, you know, since we can't have a real experiment, this is unfortunately the closest we can get. Or fortunately. Um, so uh, can you take us along with you? What were the notions you had going in? What were you expecting? So basically, if this doctrine exists in Russia, escalates to de-escalate, it plays on the fears of the European public in particular. You know, there is a notion that Germans, but then as well other European countries, that they're extremely scared of war. They haven't been confronted with war for a very long time, and it's a very good thing, of course. But if you haven't been confronted with a situation for a very long time, you have, you know, like a buildup of a lot of fear. Uh, so technically, the Russians could say, if you use this nuclear weapon, then you will have hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Germans going on the streets in Berlin and in Frankfurt and in Munich, and maybe even the Dutch going to come out and the Scandinavians going to come out and the Italians and the Spanish and so forth. And they're all going to sue for peace. Meaning, you know, they basically say, this is going to escalate and this is going to be too dangerous and they put pressure on their respective governments so that they try to find some kind of political arrangement with Russia. And to a certain degree, this is exactly what the Russians want because they know uh, that they can actually not really win a full-scale war. And of course, in the big picture of things, NATO has an interest in preventing that nuclear war. But in the ensuing peace negotiations, if you want, one could imagine that Russia then actually has the upper hand Because they were willing to demonstrate that they were going to the extremes, right? And so, and NATO is then approaching Russia and asking them to stop. So fear was one of the responses you were expecting. What was the other? Well, the other big emotional response would be anger, right? So that actually a lot of folks would be saying, and we have to seek revenge, right? We cannot accept what the Russians are doing. So basically, it was a juxtaposition of fear or anger. And what I found in my research was actually that interestingly, especially the German public gets more angry in such a scenario and not actually fearful. And so if you want, you know, these are very preliminary conclusions, but that could be actually quite bad for Russia because angry German population is maybe one that will actually not seek a peace settlement right away, but could imagine some kind of retaliation. And that's certainly what's not in the doctrine right now. Michael Kreppen, co-founder of the Washington think tank, the Stimson Center, argues the status quo is clearly less stable now than it was during the Cold War. And I was wondering, do you agree with that assessment? 
And what would you say is strategic stability? What are the obstacles to that? Well, strategic stability basically means that not a single power has a comparative advantage over the other nuclear powers. Uh, so there is a concept which is called MAD, mutually assured destruction. And it's actually quite a stable state, one could argue, because it means that not a single power could take out or protect itself from a nuclear attack of the other. So it means, you know, if they try to use nuclear weapons, they will be destroyed by the opposing forces. But it's true right now, strategic stability is actually not entirely assured. Uh, and so what creates imbalances in the system? So what's strategic instability? Well, there are two major ways. The first one is you have a counterforce capability, meaning you actually have either technically superior or quantitatively superior numbers of nuclear weapons. And so in the first strike, so in one go, you can actually take out the large majority of the nuclear devices of your opponent. And so for some time, when folks argued that the United States had such a counterforce capability, it's a little bit controversial, but it's at least one of the issues that can create instability. The second big way of how you can create imbalances is via missile defense systems, because they can basically stop these weapons, these missiles penetrating territory. And then, you know, like the MAD constellation, so the mutual short destruction constellation is no longer guaranteed. And so via arms control negotiations, right now the objective is that strategic stability can be achieved again. But why is the current situation so unstable or so threatening? Because you have China, you have Russia, massively investing in nuclear technology. Just last week, we had new intelligence coming out of China that they're building missile silos in the desert of Gansu. And, you know, this has in one way or another um, something to do with nuclear weapons. And, you know, why would you invest billions of dollars in such installations if you don't want to use it at least, you know, in this um, strategic bargaining context? All right. But is there any way to incentivize China to participate in arms control? Or are you pessimistic on that front? Well, there's always, of course, some kind of possibility. Um, so, you know, we should uh, never stop uh, wishing for and dreaming of and fighting for complete nuclear disarmament. It's just, you know, that you need to come up with the right incentive structures. I don't think they're going to do it voluntarily. Uh, and the same applies as well to Russia. I don't think a normative discourse is enough because there's just like too much of a conviction in those states, and by the way, as well in other states, that nuclear weapons are incredibly powerful and thus important. And so I think the bargaining incentive needs to be a little bit more than just saying you should stop proliferating. Talking about the incentives, I read Professor Jeffrey Lewis of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey says slowing down a new arms race means compromising on missile defense. Do you think that's a way? I just mentioned that. So that's the second pathway of achieving strategic stability. Let's look to Europe. This year, Germany saw a renewed controversy about the future of nuclear sharing. So the question whether Germany should continue to host U.S. tactical nuclear weapons on its territory and provide the dual-capable aircrafts to deliver those weapons. How might this figure into the coalition negotiations following the German parliamentary elections this September? So there are two different purposes of nuclear sharing in Germany and in Europe of all the NATO and nuclear sharing partners. There's a political purpose that has a lot to do with NATO cohesion. NATO, in one way or another, was born as a nuclear alliance. 
And there's the possibility, of course, of European countries to, in one way or another, influence American decision-making. So if there are no longer these nuclear sharing arrangements, the United States literally wouldn't have any need to consult. And then there are these military strategic purposes, and I think that's quite important as well to understand, because no conflict goes from zero to 180. So in every conflict, you have so-called escalation ladders, and sometimes they can be very slow. Uh, so, you know, like you move one more ship here and one division over there and some more helicopters to this base and so forth. And of course, there's as well like the entire political rhetoric. And sometimes the escalation ladders can be very um, quick. And the NATO nuclear sharing mechanism, the greatest advantage is actually in its role in this escalation ladder dynamic. Because if these rugs of the ladder are fairly slow, one could imagine that you can mobilize one of these dual-capable aircraft. And the big advantage of it is that you can actually recall it. So you can call it back. Missiles, you cannot call back. Once they're on their trajectory, they're basically gone. So again, you know, we're again in this logic of communication, of signaling that somebody is unhappy about a certain situation and the opponent needs to react. And so I think in Germany, most of this knowledge is actually not present, or at least it's not publicly debated. And I think even a lot of the politicians are not fully aware. Of course, you still have defense strategists, and hopefully they are aware. But I think a lot of the politicians are not aware. So right now, especially on the left side of the German political spectrum, there's a huge opposition to nuclear weapons. But the problem is that the discourse is very, very limited. So it's basically a black and white discussion is nuclear weapons are, you know, basically useless because they can't be used in war fighting. And so they need to be abolished. And I think there's an absolute misunderstanding of, no, I'm not saying that this is a good role, but the real role, which is nuclear bargaining. And right now, of course, the prediction is that the new government will end nuclear sharing. But, you know, I think that it will be not that quickly of a decision. Because slowly we can see that there is more comprehension of these topics. And it's a very complicated question. We're right in the middle of talking policy implications of the research. And I was wondering, back in early 2017, when Biden was still VP, he said, given our non-nuclear capabilities and the nature of today's threats, it's hard to envision a plausible scenario in which the first use of nuclear weapons by the United States would be necessary or make sense. Do you think a sole purpose policy is on the table? It sounds from what you said that in the context of bargaining, that's a problematic position. Exactly. And so my prediction is that Biden will not actually implement it. And a uh, question on the Europeans. In the past, the Europeans have been more of a pawn in the whole debate. What would be a European position on this in a European interest? Well, I'm not entirely sure whether that is a possibility. Of course, there is in talk of a Euro deterrent force so that the French would be sharing their nuclear weapons. And even Emmanuel Macron hinted at some kind of consultation among European states. But when you look very closely, that's a lot of talk and not much action. So for now, it's basically the French will probably be in charge of the French nuclear weapons and the British of the British nuclear weapons and then the Americans of the American nuclear weapons. And then, of course, the only way how some kind of sharing exists and where Technically, some European nations have to say is this nuclear sharing mechanism. And of course, Katarina, don't get me wrong, a lot of discussion needs to happen uh, on how this nuclear sharing should actually look like. 
because there are a lot of flaws in the system. But the discussion cannot be a black and white discussion. That's the problem that we have. This discussion needs to be in the gray zone. Of what is this actually all about? Because this is not about just dropping nuclear bombs on Russian territory. It's a much, much larger discussion than that. And then, you know, like, how can we improve or what should we do? You know, like, once we have understood what this is actually all about, what should we do about the current arrangement? And can we actually make it better? And of course, as well, safer. So the debate is really just beginning. It looks like it is. Last question. It doesn't feel like it here in Berlin, but summer is here. And I'd like to know what's on top of your summer reading list. Well, I will tell you what's on the top of my nuclear security reading list, because I feel that some folks, you know, after this podcast, maybe want to know, fill in some blanks and can get more information. So I think the best start for anyone who actually wants to understand what nuclear weapons in this bargaining context is all about is Thomas Schelling's work on the bargaining nature of nuclear weapons. And he wrote two excellent books. The first one is called The Strategy of Conflict and the second one, Arms and Influence. And I think both of them are excellent. And then I want to recommend as well Beatrice Heuser's work. She is a phenomenal scholar who is originally from Germany, but then has lived abroad for quite a while. And for example, she wrote a terrific book on nuclear mentalities, where she's very much focused on European countries and how they're dealing with nuclear weapons. And I can recommend both of these authors very warmly. Thank you so much. And also, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Katarina. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. 